Welcome to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from the Rural Health Information Hub. My name is Andrew Nelson. In this podcast, we'll be talking with a variety of experts about providing rural health care, problems they've encountered, and ways in which those problems can be solved. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Raina Sage and Dr. Katherine Ibsen. They're co-directors of the Research and Training Center on Disability in Rural Communities at the University of Montana. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about the population that lives with disabilities in rural parts of the country in terms of demographics, types of disability, living situations, and so forth? Sure. I'll start that question. I think that um, there's this assumption that rural disability rates are higher because older people live in rural communities and therefore kind of age into disability. But while there are more older people in rural areas, the disability rate isn't driven by being older. And in fact, there are higher rates of disability across the age span and across different disability types in rural compared to urban areas. And this is Raina, and I would just add that um, while many rural areas are less diverse um, in terms of racial diversity, it's not always the case. And so when we think about rural, we often have stereotypes of white, farming, Midwestern, and there's really a lot of different um, types of rural communities. But rural places do lead the country in poverty rates. Rural people report the onset of disability earlier than urban folks, and that's especially true for people of color. One other thing I wanted to add was that rural communities um, in general are less accessible to community members. And this really happens because there's older building stock, there's less new construction, there are things like transportation barriers that prevent people from getting around. And then a lot of smaller employers that are not subject to some of the same legislative requirements in terms of meeting the EDA. So there's um, rural has higher rates of disability, but there's also this intersection with the environment that can create more limiting uh, circumstances. We often hear about the goal of independent living for people with disabilities. Could you tell us what that term means and what that might look like in a rural community? I would say that independent living really centers on the concept of choice and control. And while many individuals may depend on others for assistance with um, personal care or activities of daily living, having a choice about who those people are, how those activities are done, and where this assistance is delivered really factors into this uh, independent living concept. And I would just add that in terms of policies um, and independent living, um, many people with disabilities have been placed in restricted settings, such as nursing homes, against their will unnecessarily. And in 1999, the Supreme Court ruled in the Olmstead decision that people have the right to be ser- receive services in the most integrated setting possible. Um, and so this resulted in Um, transitions from institutions into the community, but many people still live in more restricted settings than they desire. And this is is especially true in rural, 
where there was a push to rebalance the long-term supports and services funding, um, particularly Medicaid dollars, um, to move it from nursing home funding to home and community-based services. And while that rebalancing um, was accomplished in uh, 2015 with 51% of the funding um, being uh, majority uh, community-based services, it has not been realized in rural places where the majority of funding is still going to nursing homes. And this is a particularly problematic uh, issue when we think about nursing home closures happening in rural places faster and more often than in urban places, which means that there's not um, community-based services replacing those. And um, so this really then leaves a lot of rural people dependent on their families and neighbors and reduces their choice and control over um, who they uh, who they receive services from and when. And just to add on that, one of those risks of a nursing home closure in a rural community is that if there aren't those supports and services in place, that may require the person to move to another nursing home that's away from their community. And so really adds this compounded um, issue of not only being kind of in this restricted setting, but no longer having access to the people and community activities uh, that are important to that individual. Rural people often grow up and live their entire lives in the same part of the country around the same people. It can be very important for them to continue to be able to kind of age in place in that environment with those people that they know. What are some services that can help enable people with disabilities in rural areas to gain or maintain their independence? When we think about independent living, it's really important to think about how all these different uh, systems interact together. And so, for instance, accessibility and accessible homes can make a huge difference to promoting independent living. Um, more accessible homes allow people to live in places with the same amount or less care than they would otherwise. And there's really simple and low-cost ways of increasing that opportunity. One example that we've kind of based in some of our research is really looking at really low cost um, home modifications, such as getting a shower bench and a handheld shower. And all of a sudden you've taken someone who maybe required quite a bit of assistance to bathe, and then they can do some of those activities independently and with less energy expenditure, which then allows them to go out in the community and have more um, energy to do that, or they feel fresh and bathed. And so they're more willing to interact with people. So these kind of really low uh, cost things that have these kind of magnifying impacts across the across um, a person's uh, participation kind of spectrum. This transportation is a huge issue. And many people don't drive and they must rely on others for rides to get to a medical appointments and shopping and place of employment or social events. And so some communities have addressed this through really innovative models, such as transportation voucher programs that are specific to rural and using some transportation dollars to pay for rides um, from friends and family, rather than having to rely on non-existent uh, rideshare things like Uber or um, taxis that just don't exist in rural places. Again, rural communities 
most people use personal vehicles to get around. And if you have a travel limiting disability that prevents you from driving, that can be, uh, you know, an issue. I would say that there are certain rural models that don't make as much sense as other models. So for instance, fixed route models in a, a real rural area tend to not serve very many people because they, um, have a very specific schedule that doesn't really accommodate specific needs and they don't have very many um, options and thinking creatively at the community level is like would it make more sense to have people you know like invest in some software that allows people to put in what their rider needs are and then have transportation tailored to those individual needs as opposed to a fixed route. And I don't know if everyone knows what a fixed route is, but it means that the bus comes at nine and noon and three on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's like, okay, that's great. I can do my errands, but it doesn't sufficiently cover my uh, transportation to work or, you know, that kind of thing, that tailored stuff. There are very creative solutions in terms of tapping into uh, church networks. There was one study where they actually did used school buses off school hours to provide transportation to folks. Um, there are employers who will kind of go, okay, we're going to make sure that people can get to our place of employment. So they will hire, uh, you know, buy a van that people can use collectively. I think that the really important thing is flexibility and really trying to build out systems that offer that. Uh, Raina talked a little bit about transportation voucher models. And this is a way, especially that's gotten so much more sophisticated, but you can um, have like accounts with dollars in them that people can spend for rides with families and friends that really reduces that dependence and makes the relationship more transactional uh, where I can ask my friend to do this. They get a benefit by doing this and I get a benefit from the ride. And I'm not paying uh, a really high price like Uber and I have a consistent relationship with someone who knows about my maybe physical disability needs and how I transfer and that kind of thing. So I think that areas can get really creative in these models. It takes a champion, I think, in a community who can really coalesce different community members around the effort, but it is possible. I think community action councils or human service agencies in rural places that manage some of these rural services, whether it's a, you know, a volunteer or voucher program, also have um, keep an eye towards accessibility and making sure if they do have their own vehicles that at least one has some um, accessibility features for folks because um, that can be a problem like yes I have a friend who can take me but I can't get into their pickup truck so just thinking about having accessible vehicles and available in rural places and then kind of related to that thinking about service provision and some of the work we've done with um, disability service services organizations like Centers for Independent Living is that these organizations are usually housed in urban places but are are charged with serving the entire rural area around those urban centers and they have a hard time and they really have to be nimble and innovative in their thinking of when they reach out to rural places and 
just understanding what resources already exist there, what they need to do to build trust um, and to understand that there's um, mistrust and think about what it takes to build relationships to get those services out into those rural areas. For example, one partner that we worked with in rural Michigan became part of an antique car club and was able to to then deliver independent living services to folks who are part of this um, antique car club and other people in the community. Another form of support or another service that can help people to maintain their independence as they age in place are personal assistance workers. Have you found there are generally enough personal assistance workers to meet rural clients' needs? And if not, what types of shortage or maldistribution have you seen in that workforce? We've done quite a bit of work in this area, looking specifically at rural issues. And some of our research in collaboration with folks at UCSF looked at the um, distribution of personal care aids and the distribution of people with self-care disabilities. These are people who said they have some serious difficulty with dressing and bathing or serious difficulty with running errands. And this is just one way we try to measure like potential need for personal care. And what we found is that there are fewer aids to people with self-care disabilities in rural places and that this is particularly true in the South. Um, And uh, part of the reason why there's not more workers in rural places is that the systems for incentivizing workers is very urban-centric. PCAs or personal care aides are expected to piece together multiple clients in a day in order to work full-time. And that just doesn't work in rural places where you have to drive far distances between people and you have you spend a lot of time in what our participants have called windshield time that's not compensated in many states, um, n- nor the wear and tear on their vehicles. So it's not it's not a job that pays well. It's a tough job. And then we have this bias towards being able to see you know, multiple people in one apartment building to fulfill a full-time day, um, just not possible. Part of that um, rural scenario is it really depends on kind of what an individual's needs are, how difficult it is to fill those positions. If you have really, really significant needs and then get significant funding to do that and you can piece together an eight-hour-a-day job, then that might be an easier thing to fit fulfill as opposed to someone like my mother who had brittle diabetes and needed someone to come at five times a day to um, administer and test for insulin. And so I think that the needs really drive some of that difficulty. But for people who need um, weekends or weekend support or evening support or those kinds of things, they really are in a significant bind because there are places that won't come out. And then from an economic standpoint, if you have provider agencies, they don't make as much money on these kind of situations, uh, these harder to serve cases. And so they they bring in their services. If there's a worker shortage, they go, okay, we're no longer going to serve this area. And the areas that get kind of dropped from services are the rural communities. So, um, you know, Part of the thing is assuming that everyone is working independently and there's this windshield time, but there's also kind of these agency perspectives about what what is good for our bottom line and our bottom line is enhanced by serving an urban area where we can cram more people in in a day and that sort of thing. 
earlier you mentioned people helping family members with disabilities in rural communities. What are some of the ways that they can do that? Family members are super important. We, um, 80% of personal care in the United States is provided by unpaid family and friends, mostly women. And so that's millions of dollars that is not an actual paid um, care. It's hard to transition into independence. These systems can become pretty paternal or maternal in certain situations. The goal of independent living is um, that the person gets to make their own decisions and choices and have control over their lives. And so working on self-advocacy skills and working with family members to improve that balance of independence and inter interdependence and I think that if somebody is working with a family member who needs more additional support um, to maintain their independence, just knowing that it might take extra time and energy to find appropriate organizations and people to get what they need. Um, disability and aging services vary from location to location and state to state. And in rural communities, word of mouth can be really powerful. So it might just mean like having starting a conversation with a local pastor to learn what other people have done or talking with a local librarian from an advocacy perspective. Um, it's just important to make sure, again, to hold those urban organizations accountable that are tasked with serving rural areas. There are groups that exist out there and they may not serve every community, but every community should know that they exist. And things like um, Centers for Independent Living is a, is a great resource. There's multiple centers across the United States and, and people should reach out to their Center for Independent Living and ask. I mean, a lot of services are driven by the demand that people ask of them. And so if no one from a rural community knows about this center that's charged with serving this rural community, it like it's kind of this miscommunication where a person needs services but doesn't know to ask and the agency doesn't know to serve because the person hasn't asked. And I think that across the board, there's things like area agencies on aging and other different organizations, even libraries is just such an example of like, this is a community resource that exists across space in a pretty consistent way and drawing upon libraries as this community um, connector is important because it that it then drives the conversations that then build the services if, if people ask for services then there's more likelihood that they're going to become available and and seen as something that's needed and I um, I, I to Reina's point, it's just really important to kind of hold agencies that are supposed to serve kind of regions accountable. There are in many states things like respite care dollars that a lot of people don't know how to access where you have an unpaid family member who then can get, um, you know, an afternoon to go do things or housekeeping service dollars. I think a lot of people think I don't need help until I have a medical reason because it's still that really medical model, but to to just be able to have somebody who comes and does the dishes or prepares food can really um, free up some of that energy. And so there are dollars in many states for that. It's just finding 
like Catherine said, finding the right <laughs> agency and where that dollars, where those dollars are. One thing I've seen that's pretty effective in rural communities for spreading information is to do little inserts in the utility bills. So that's something that like if maybe don't have like a community board or a Facebook page. So that's one way that I've seen people learn about what's going on with different um, services by having that little insert in the utility bill. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for people that aren't on Facebook or don't use the internet very much. That's a great way to kind of reach out to people. Catherine, earlier you mentioned community living as one alternative to a nursing home. People don't necessarily need to go from living by themselves to living in a nursing home. Could you talk about some of the other environments they might be able to consider to maintain their quality of life? Well, I think that um, kind of that in-between model can be done with a group home where individuals come together to live and they have uh, supports that are shared across individuals. Um, it can be informal or formal arrangement, but that's one. There's some transitional and assisted living options. I, I think that the most important important thing is really that advanced planning so that you aren't uh, approaching a situation or a transition in a crisis, that you actually have um, done some some thinking ahead of that crisis so that you aren't, uh, you know, you aren't making all these kind of changes in kind of this emergency system where you're like, okay, we have to get you placed. We have to da 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 da. The other thing that I would say is that Assistive technology and people's ability to build that into their homes ahead of a, a crisis is super important. There are so many things available to people now. There's robots that can help with feeding. There's remote cameras so that someone doesn't have to necessarily be with you all the time. There's smart homes. Um, there's just things that people can do, uh, you know, things as simple as grab bars or you know, if we have a situation where I know my um, health and physical ability is deteriorating, then time to figure out how to get the laundry upstairs or how to how to make these shifts in your home environment to allow you to stay there longer and with with more ease and safety. I think even the most inaccessible home can be made more accessible and safer with some changes. The assistive technology and home modifications too can really be critical in supporting those unpaid caregivers that um, that enable folks to stay in their homes. If you have a lift system throughout your home, um, that makes a big difference that their wife doesn't have to lift them and they can get all over the home. And so just having those also supports our unpaid and paid caregivers and guards against injury and fatigue. And, and the other thing that's not happening in very many communities, but I think it's super cool and there is kind of a movement definitely in Europe and maybe maybe here a little bit in the aging is these, um, doing uh, these rural cooperatives that are multi-generational arrangements between younger people who, especially with the housing situation that we're seeing in many 
places um, can have affordable housing in exchange for some of the caregiving and community maintenance tasks. Again, not seeing it too much, but I think it's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good to it's good to be aware of some of those possibilities, even if it might not be feasible to do right now. It's something that community members can kind of keep in mind if if they see an opportunity or a way they might be able to implement it in the future. Raina brought up the a gentleman who got a lift system throughout his house, and how he managed to do that with was with managed care dollars that there were actually dollars available for him to make those kind of modifications. I don't know that that's true for every managed care company or or whatever, but like explore that. Will you pay for X, Y, and Z knowing that at the at the other end, you're not going to be paying for home health aids or, or that sort of thing. So there's a trade-off and, you know, there's a possibility for negotiation in terms of covering those kinds of costs. Absolutely. Since aging can often come with disability, we might often lump together aging and disability topics. Can you talk about some of the needs of children and younger adults with disabilities in rural communities that might be different from those of older adults? One of the things that we can do of most benefit to uh, a younger person with a disability is to really allow them the opportunity to begin to find their own voice and to describe their own needs and to ask people for um, assistance in the ways that they needed. I, I think that one of the really hard things for transition age is that uh, in the schools and in their homes, parents really pick up a lot of the slack. And I think that that's really important when their kids are really young and they may not have some of those skills. But as kids get closer and closer to adulthood, um, there needs to be opportunities for them to really practice being adults and practice finding the services that they need and practice managing finances and practice understanding what their disability is and how that, what kinds of accommodations they need or that sort of thing. So there's training that kids can receive on that, those kinds of skills, but it's important that they're outside of the school setting, for instance, and, you know, things like driver training. Lots of kids with disabilities can drive if given the opportunity and uh, coursework that allows them to take the test in a way that they can learn the material and succeed. But, you know, they need to practice that. You don't go from being um, really supported a lot to being independent without having some practice time. And I would add to that what we hear in the independent living community and disability justice community is that part of how young people build the confidence and get ideas for doing how to build their own independent lives is through opportunity to be with peers. And so for a lot of rural youth, they might be the only person in their school with a disability or a, one of a handful of people and they, everybody has a different disability and it's a different experience. And so um, getting young people connected with uh, organizations like April, the Association for Programs in Rural Independent Living, um, that that organization really focuses on helping youth build their own disability identity and connect with other people, um, peers who have similar experiences and 
um, also live in rural communities. And I think that piece can really support the, you know, I talked to my friend and this is a strategy they use with the, in the classroom with their teacher. And now I'm going to try this strategy um, and can support those kinds of things that Catherine was talking about. Yeah. I suppose having perhaps an increased familiarity with the internet um, and being able to being able to research and connect with people online might also be helpful to them. Rural broadband continues to be something that many rural communities don't have or, or aren't set up to supply adequate access to, but that is something that might kind of help to empower um, rural younger people with disabilities uh, in a way we haven't seen up to this point. Absolutely, Andrew. I really appreciate that comment because the world is moving towards digital solutions in in so many spheres, be it medicine, be it education, be it employment. And um, really practicing those skills uh, is a, an important thing. And things like becoming part of a peer group and having to get on the internet and having to Zoom and having to type things and that sort of thing uh, really helps people move towards more independence later on. Um, and I agree that um, digital access is and continues to be an issue, but there are also uh, solutions and strategies to overcome that. Most libraries have some kind of digital access and public keeps computers, so do adult learning centers, uh, so do most schools. And, you know, really trying to think creatively at, you know, within those settings, it doesn't necessarily need to be at home out on the far where that um, digital access is, is more limited, but digital access can, can take many forms. And, you know, satellite is, is one strategy. Unfortunately, all these things come with a cost, right? But there are programs available, particularly with the Infrastructure Act that are designed to overcome some of those limitations. And there are discounts for people who maybe don't have the funds to buy internet access or other uh, satellite kinds of options. And, you know, there's, uh, there's programs to help them with that. So I think with all things rural, first of all, it's very individualized, right? It's not like, oh, hey, big city with millions of people, here's how you can address this. It might be different, but there usually are some strategies and really tapping into places like um, independent living centers that really have those kind of uh, strategies at their fingertips for that particular region or area are important. Yeah, uh, I, I guess we generally tend to think of younger people as often being more comfortable with technology and more tech savvy. But but in general, having access to some of those some of those other forms of communication will enable people to kind of have more of a sense of community. You mentioned earlier how a person might be the only person in your area that has a disability or is or is facing a particular challenge, but you can connect with other people in other places that are sharing some of those experiences. That's not really a service in the way that providing transportation or having a personal assistant is, but that can still be an important kind of support as well. When we're thinking about people with disabilities and in rural places, one thing that we want to be really thoughtful about is guarding against social isolation and loneliness. 
um, as you know, it's connected to physical and mental health deterioration and just looking for ways like peer support or through a, a community group or ways to guard against that um, for rural people. Because no matter our ability level, we generally feel better when we feel needed and that we are contributing and not a burden. So having that be really kind of a reciprocal situation. So again, that like not a formal, necessarily formal, although we have seen some peer and um, mentoring programs that are more formal, but just that really helping guard against that and making sure people feel like they're contributing as part of their community. You've been listening to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from RHI Hub. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Raina Sage and Dr. Katherine Ibsen, co-directors of the Research and Training Center on Disability in Rural Communities at the University of Montana. Look in our show notes for more information about their work and visit ruralhealthinfo.org for all things pertaining to rural health.